And Father, I pray that as we gather around it, Lord God, that you would not give us information, but that you would give us transformation through the work of your Spirit, according to your foreknowledge of the Father and the work of Jesus Christ, Lord God. We lift up your name and praise you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, I was thinking this week, you know, uh, this week I had um, some sad news. My uncle passed away this week. And so I was sitting there the other day when I heard it, remembering, you know, like we often do, going back and you play things in your mind. And I remember that every Christmas, this was the place that we would go to to celebrate Christmas. And Christmas was my favorite holiday, and I'd like to tell you that it was my favorite holiday because I grew up in a Christian family, but that would be a lie. Christmas was my favorite holiday because we went to my Uncle John's house, and it was always an adventure. It was always an adventure. Generally, we'd pull up to my Uncle John's house, and everything just seemed perfect as we pulled up. Here we are driving on a, a narrow, kind of tree-lined street. There would often be snow on the ground. You know, you'd kind of pull in. You'd see the smoke coming up from the fireplace. The, the, dr- the driveway looked like a parking lot with car after car after car after car. Cousins, aunts, uncles, neighbors, all these people that had streamed there, boyfriends, girlfriends. You'd walk in and the house was so clean. And, you know, the mistletoe was hanging from, you know, the rafter. And he had not yet, my Uncle John, got to the point where he turned on the big band music. So, so it was great when we showed up. And, you know, you'd have the smell of the eggnog that had been chilling, you know, and the nutmeg and candles going and smiles all around. And, we'd, you know, the dog, you know, they had like 18 dogs. The dogs would be greeting you all over the place. We'd find out, you know, he raised turkeys and he would name his turkeys Christmas and Easter. And so we'd, we'd get to see what Christmas looked like on the inside. And, and it was just this glorious, you know, anticipation as we showed up year after year with, you know, 30, 40, 50 people there. Life together at Uncle John and Aunt Miriam's house on Christmas Day had the hope of joy. Have you ever felt that way? Fast forward six hours and things were quite different. Uh, for one, I had been, I had been locked in the, not locked, but locked in the basement with all of my cousins. And picture, you know, full-scale basement, you know, kind of like 30 by 40, where we created the G.I. Joe Star Wars epic fight scene. I mean, I just mean like a picture of bin after bin after bin. I guarantee you we had more G.I. Joes than you had. And I mean, just imagine them and the Star Wars everywhere and, you know, bases and setups. And it was just a total disaster. And then the cry would come down, it's time to leave. Like, we're just getting started. And so we, 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 this, we had found this basement pristine. And then we did this wonderful thing you do when you're a guest at someone's house. When you hear it's time to go, you just leave and you leave the mess there. And then I'd walk upstairs, and even as a young kid, it was obvious things had changed drastically. Now there was just food strewn everywhere, and plates of dishes, and most of the room legitimately was drunk and angry. And there would always be someone crying in the corner over something that was said. If it was the normal Christmas, my father, while he was alive, had just told one of our relatives what he really thought of them. And that's why we were now leaving, because it was time before a fist fight broke out between the Hemricks and the Heinrichs. Someone, the Merry Maids team couldn't clean it up. 
We had, we had come up with the promise of enjoying this life together, and now things had gotten fairly messy. Anyone else have a story like that? Sure, a few of you do. God calls us to live this life together, and yet things get messy because of a word that the Bible calls sin. Things get messy and difficult and challenging, and the only hope for beauty to rise through that mess is through faith and obedience in the work of a perfect God shown through the Lord Jesus Christ. We see this vision of life together in Acts chapter 2. If you've got your app or you got your Bible, you want to open up with me to Acts chapter 2. For this great picture, if you, if you have read the scriptures, I am sure you have seen this verse. This is one of those verses that book after book after book has been written about. As, as theologians kind of angle down in Acts 2, f- verse 42 to 47, they look at the characteristics of this early church and they say, this is what we're aiming for. This is what the church is supposed to look like. And they're right, but that's an incomplete statement, as we're going to see. Acts 2.42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple courts together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Again, I think of how many books I have read and articles I have seen that say, this is the target we are aiming to in the life of the church. This is what Christian community is supposed to look like. And you can see why. Who wouldn't want to be in this church in these five verses? Who wouldn't want to be in this church? We could spend a lot of time talking about these characteristics, but we're going to go briefly, quickly. First thing is we see that this church is devoted, not dabbling. They're others-focused, not self-focused. They have shared life, not shared space. Devoted, not dabbling. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. Every time I read this passage, the word that strikes me is that word devoted. They were devoted. I mean, we've got these beautiful characteristics, but, but it's that word that just kind of stands out to me. The, if we opened up our Bible software, the, the particular definition of that word devoted is to continue to do something with intense effort, even if it is difficult. That's kind of the add-on. Even if it is greatly difficult, you continue to do something with intense effort. So again, we could talk a lot about the, the, these, the prayer, fellowship, breaking of bread, devoted to the right teaching of the word through the apostles. Great, but think about that word, devoted. That's almost the word I would underline. How many things can we actually say we're devoted to? There's a lot of things I dabble in. There's a lot of things I think we can all dabble in. But what can we really say we are devoted to? I love watching Blue Bloods every week. But I do not lose sleep if I miss it, okay? 
Uh, I will tell you that there, there was a, a, a season of life where I probably watched 153 of the 162 Yankees games in a given year. But I don't anymore. Not for lack of desire. So I guess I'm not devoted to it. I, you know, I try to live this active life, and I walk around with this thing on my wrist telling me how many steps I've walked, and I smile when I get the little flash that goes across and says, you've met your goal, yay, and I'm like, great. But if truth be told, I'm probably more devoted to having an ice cream cone than going up an extra three flights of stairs. What are we, what are we devoted to? I think, again, if we're honest, we'll admit that amidst the busyness of many even good things in life it is really hard to be devoted to a lot of things the list of things we have the time the emotional mental and spiritual energy to be devoted to is rather small and you can tell what you're devoted to the easiest way to tell what you're devoted to is how you respond when you lose it what are we devoted to we've got to choose how amazing it had to be to be in this community where there is this shared devotion to each other. And I mean, you can think about that for a minute. You ever been in a relationship where you feel like, okay, I'm giving 100% and this person's giving 60% and you're like, Ugh. or I'm devoted to the Lord and I just want to go deeper and grow and read and pray. And this person, every time they hear, that, you know, even though it's Bible study, every time they hear we're having a Bible study, they kind of skip out half an hour early. Like, we're in relationships like that sometimes where we feel like we are... Giving different amounts, right? Different proportions. That can be discouraging. It's amazing to look at this community and think, wow, they are together devoted. How wonderful it had to be to be in this community of the same shared level of commitment and zeal. How much they were probably spurring one another on towards righteousness and good deeds. It had to be incredible to be in this beautiful community. I can see why we aspired to it 2,000 years later. They were others-focused and not self-focused. I mean, do you think about that? People are selling their homes and possessions and giving to others who are in need. It's amazing. And again, let's just note, I always like to give the aside, this is not communism, right? This is free choice, right? They are freely choosing to do this. They've got hearts that are open to bless and eyes that are open to see where the blessing is needed. See the two parts to that? I think they're important. Wouldn't you want to be part of this church? A church where collectively you have people with walking around with open eyes looking to notice needs and then generous hearts that say, I want to meet that need. It's really important because you know, there, there, I think there are some of us, right, that we are incredibly generous, but we don't walk around looking to activate that generosity we're happy to do it when something falls in our lap. But in this case, you get the sense it's proactive. I had a friend of mine who went, really close friend of mine, went through a remarkably difficult season. And he's going through this difficult season, and this was one of those seasons that really made him, of himself, lose confidence in his faith, lose confidence in um, the Christian community he was a part of. And he had a ton of financial needs. And it was in that season where he experienced this kind of life that God ministered to his soul. Because he'd have people, he, people, I remember one person just came up to him and said, I know you need a car, here's my used car, take it. He'd have another guy that would walk up to him every month and say, how much were your utility bills this month? 
Okay, here you go. He'd hand him, he'd open up and hand him Benjamins right on the spot. He had a, another person that found him a, a, a temporary part-time job, just came up and said, I'm sure you need a job. I can't hire you long-term. Take this in the short term. He had another person that every few months would just walk up to him and put a wad full of cash in his hand and said, I love you and so does Jesus. And the coolest thing for him as about this, this hard season that helped him hold on to his faith in Christ after losing his marriage and his job was that he never asked for anything. He never posted his needs on Facebook. He never sent out an email saying, this is the situation I'm in. Can anyone help? He didn't advertise how desperate he was. People saw and heard and maybe they prayed. People just met the needs they assumed that he would have. People were walking around with open eyes looking at him and they realized here is a brother for whom Christ died that we will be with for eternity. Let's just proactively bless him. It was amazing. It saved his life and his faith. It was beautiful. Their loving generosity helped him keep his faith in the power of the local church when everything else felt lost. Walking around, that's what this early church did. Open eyes and open hearts. Wouldn't you want to be part of that church? This church shared life, not just space. Again, it says they were devoted to the breaking of bread together in each other's homes. Devoted. Strong word when we talk about how often do we have someone in our homes. Well, we're devoted to it. Wow. Pastor Tim is a wonderful spokesman for the power of hospitality. And if you've been here six months, you've probably heard him say, we need to practice hospitality better. And there's a reason. This is not just Pastor Tim's glorious soapbox. This is the soapbox of scripture that Pastor Tim just kindly grabs the microphone and says, look at the vision God is giving us. Meeting in each other's homes was something the early church was devoted to. We gather together in this building right now. Right now in this room, however many of us are here, we're sharing space. But let's just be honest. There's a lot of us in this room right now. It's just impossible. You put more than 30 people in the room, sometimes it's hard to share life together. Forget about 300, 500, 600. We're sharing space in worship right now. But there's a level in which it's really tough for me to share life with you who are in the third row from the back. I can share space with you, I can, I can corporately worship with you, but it's very hard for me to share life with you on a deep, intimate level, and that is what is happening here. We can sit next to each other on a Sunday morning, we can pray Jesus together, we can listen to a sermon together, we can pray together, we can give together, but we can really know nothing about each other. Nothing beyond what you'd say in the foyer. Hello, I hope you have a good week. Are you more apt to confess sin... Admit frailty talk, and talk about you, both your achievements and your stresses in 30 minutes after this service in this room or in someone's living room after you've shared a meal and a healthy conversation. Where are you more apt to share that life together? They, 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 are, they are devoted to welcoming each other into each other's homes. Not simply, don't think that they all have the gift of hospitality. Because the Bible would say we don't all have the gift of hospitality. None of us all have any gift. I remember one time I had a brother come up to me in a previous church. 
and he had chosen to leave the church, and he said to me, and I said, well, why? And he said, well, you know, all of a sudden something dawned on me, and I said, what? And this was a guy that served as a deacon. He said, I've come to this church for 17 years, and I've never been invited to anyone's home for dinner. And I don't know that anyone really knows who I am. 2005 May survey produced the following answers to the question, how often do we entertain guests for dinner? Once a week, 6%. Once a month, 21%. More than once a month, 12%. A few times a year, 37%. Rarely or never, 24%. It's from USA Today. The church is the arena that God has given us to satisfy one of the deepest longings of our heart, to know and be known. We all want that. We all want to know others and be known by others on a deep level. And the church is God's instrument for us to enjoy that in Christ. One of the best ways we enjoy that gift is by welcoming each other into our homes. Your house may be messy and you may not be a great cook and you may feel like you don't have the gift of hospitality. You may be a single dude. But when you put a burger in someone's hand and you share a conversation about what makes you each tick, and they ask you about your passions and your dreams, you will feel loved. And so will they. This church was enjoying this beautiful life together, and God was blessing it. And, th and that's why book after book uses it as a paradigm of how we should order our churches and our worship. And on one hand, they're right. This Acts 2, 42 to 47 church should be a model. We should try and build our lives together in Christ, devoting ourselves to the word, prayer, generosity, fellowship. But if we look only at this picture of Acts chapter 2, we're not seeing the complete picture. And we're setting ourselves up for a big disappointment. Because this picture in Acts 2 is like a beautiful, you know, so I'm from New England, right? Beautiful New England church, white on white on white. I mean the building, right? You know, white building, white steeple, white inside. You know, in the town I lived in, in Hingham, there were three colors you could have the road on Main You only had three colors if you lived on Main Street. You could have any building. And they were all a variation of, guess, white. Right? And, and that's what, that's, that, that's our picture, right? And that is an incomplete picture from the pages of Scripture. Because we don't, we don't go too far from Acts 2 before we see things get messy. Acts chapter 5, if you want to turn there. And maybe this is one of those verses I can remember for years. I remember the first couple times I read the book of Acts, I was troubled by this event. Acts 5 verses 1 to 11. And a really simplistic explanation of why God's response is so strong and what you're going to see here in Acts chapter 5 is because of where things were in Acts chapter 2. They're connected. Acts chapter 5 verse 1. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's full knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? 
You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young man rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. So that's proof. You know how a lot of churches you say, oh, we expect the youth, the teens to do everything? Well, it started in Acts chapter 5. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young man came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. This beautiful church has gotten messy. Just like those wonderful handprints you see over there. So again, imagine for a minute one of those beautiful old white New England churches. That, oh good, Tammy, you're amazing. That looks peaceful and perfect. And now it's got graffiti all over it. Sin and Satan have entered the picture, and the church has gotten messy because of it. I generally call a dead body in the church foyer messy. Just saying. Ananias and Sapphira followed the example of others in the church, right? They, we, we read that, right? People are selling their possessions, and they're distributing to anyone as they had need. Ananias and Sapphira have seen this, and they're like, yeah, okay, let's do that. So they sell a piece of their property, right? So let's just put numbers on it to make it a little easier for us to understand in case you didn't catch it. They sell their property for $100,000. They keep back $50,000. They walk to the apostles, lay $50,000 at the apostles' feet and say, this is what we got for our house. Use it to bless other people. This is the, we sold it for $50,000. We're happy to give everything we got from it to bless other people. See what's happened there? They acted like they were giving the apostles all of the money, when in reality they kept some back. They lied about their level of generosity. Why? Because they wanted to make themselves look good. They wanted to be seen as faithful. They wanted to be seen as being more generous than they really were. I mean, you, I mean, you can appreciate it. Again, they didn't have to, it, it sounds a little better to say, I'm giving you everything I have, rather than saying, well, you know, I sold it. I'm happy to give you a little bit of it. I'm happy to help out a little. Actually, both would be generous, right? But they want to be seen as generous all the way. They wanted their image and their reputation of someone who was generous. This is the messiness of the human heart. We do good things to be seen. We want to justify ourselves before God and before each other. This is a human problem. We want to look good. And we still care about how we look even in the church. And as an aside, there is no reason to think that Ananias and Sapphira were not believers. No reason to think that. In fact, the fact that Peter says you've lied to the Holy Spirit kind of, I think, implies us to believe that God has just struck down two Christians for doing this. Theme of the human heart. All right, so there's this great novel by Albert Camus. Albert Camus was a um, absurdist. He was a philosopher. He was a writer. He was French. He hated Jesus. I hope you read him. 
You know, if we really want to understand how we can witness the people that don't love Jesus, we actually have to understand what makes them tick and why they think the way they do. We have to engage on their level sometimes. This is, the Fall is probably his most famous and complicated novel. It's about a French lawyer named Jean-Baptiste Clements. Jean-Baptiste Clements is this famous lawyer who originally was working in Paris. He was the lawyer that if you were O.J. Simpson, you'd hire him to get you off. He was the lawyer that Enron would call. He was the lawyer, if you said, I am in a deep trouble, I need the best to represent me, you'd call Jean-Baptiste Clements. But here's the neat thing. Jean-Baptiste Clements also was the defender of orphan and widows. He was the one that would take those cases where people were desperate, where they were being taken advantage of by the government or by an employer, and he would work for them pro bono for free, guaranteeing them victory. He was, and, and he raved about how much he loved to help the disenfranchised. He was seen as a noble man. Everyone knew him as this great example, muscular, handsome, brilliant, the guy that would walk into the bar, buy everyone a drink. But what are you like when no one sees you? One night, Clements is walking home, and he's crossing a bridge, and he's crossing a bridge, and he sees a woman um, late at night there, kind of alone, just standing on the edge of the bridge, and he thinks that's strange, and he walks by her, and as he walks by her, he gets a few feet, and he hears a splash. She jumped in. A few minutes later, he hears screaming and crying from where she jumped in, and he pauses for a moment. And there's no one else there. And he puts one foot in the other and he keeps walking away. And this starts his crisis. Because he realizes. He's had this impression that he's been this good, noble man. Helping people, serving people, defending the disenfranchised, the orphan, the widow. Buying people drinks, being magnanimous. And all of a sudden, he's real, this whole self-image begins to crumble because he realizes that he has never delighted in doing anything good for its own sake. He's never delighted in loving or blessing someone or another for their sake or to serve them. Everything he has done has been for his own image and reputation and justification. And it's great because there's more than he just to go back and act like, well, I'm still good. And, and some months later, he's walking back on the same bridge and he's getting to the bridge and he's thinking about how he just helped this person out who is um, lame and disabled and he won their case. And, he, and he's saying, I am really glad I'm a good person. And he gets right to that place where the woman jumped off the bridge. And as he's thinking this thought about how great he is, he hears a laugh. And he turns around. And there's no one there. And he realizes he has been a fraud his entire life. This is a struggle of the human heart. We, want, we do good things in order to be seen doing good things. You ever find yourself serving in the church because you wanted to be seen as serving? Have you ever posted devotions on social media out of a need to be seen as holy and hungry for Christ? 
and good grief. This is becoming so prevalent. John Christ has got a great YouTube about it, right? Look up John Christ, social media. He's got this great YouTube about, okay, i got to get everything right for me to post the Instagram photo of my quiet time so everyone can see how holy I am. You know, and the person in the skit, you get the sense they're spending more time trying to frame the photo of their devotions than they actually spend having their devotions. Why do we do that? I've had courageous, and I use this word intentionally, courageous people admit to me that they served on the worship team because they wanted other people's praise. I've had courageous people admit to me that they shared things in Bible study, and the reason they spoke so much was because they wanted other people to think that they were holy and knew the Bible well. I've seen people shattered when they lose their ministry because though they didn't know it, their value became tied to their ministry rather than to Jesus Christ. And they only realized how much that was the case when they lost it and the idol was exposed. There's a reason Jesus says we should give without our left hand knowing our right hand is doing. Right? There's a reason Jesus condemns the Pharisee. What does he do, right? He prays these great prayers in public. Great prayers in public because he wants to be seen as holy and godly and a prayer warrior. And and that's when Jesus says, go into your closet and pray alone. Stop just praying to be seen as some godly person. We have this tremendous ability to do good works for sinful, selfish reasons that are rooted in our own insecurity. And the example of Ananias and Sapphira reminds us that this does not stop the moment we say to Jesus, here I am, save me. It continues. And when you put a bunch of people together, it's really easy for that that insecurity and need for self-justification to become part of the community's unspoken DNA. A bunch of sinners living a life together makes for a messy church. And I am thankful to the Lord that he does not punish us all the way Ananias and Sapphira did, the way he punished them. Because I think we wouldn't need any new parking lots or church building projects. I really don't. But if you're honest and able enough to admit that there have been times you have done good things out of a desire to be seen, out of a felt need to prove your worth in the eyes of God and each other, out of a need to build a reputation of virtue, I have good news for you. God loves you. And God has something better for you than you are trying to earn for yourself. God loves you so much, he wants you to enjoy something better that he has done for you in Christ. See this work of a perfect God, Romans chapter 4. What shall we say then was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Romans 4, Paul is discussing the doctrine of justification. How we gain right standing with God. 
We're justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. This is the message of the scriptures. Martin Luther called the doctrine of justification the doctrine upon which the church stands or falls. What makes us valuable? What makes us worthy? What makes us lovely? We sang it a few minutes ago. The work of the Lord. Abraham, notice in Romans 4, he doesn't earn his justification. He doesn't make himself right with God by devoting himself to the teaching of the word. He doesn't make himself right with God by being devoted to his Christian friends or by being generous to those who are in need. Abraham is made right with God through faith in the God who justifies sinners. Faith. He doesn't earn his right standing with God. God gave it to him by grace alone, through faith alone. What would it be like to live a life free of spiritual obligation? I don't know about you, I spent my entire childhood growing up learning about how important obligation was. We have to do this. Why? Because they expect us to. We have to do this. Why? Because they did it for us. Well, we have, to go, we, we have to send them a gift. Why? We never have before. Well, they sent us a gift. I can remember growing up and like hearing my parents discuss how we were going to give this much money to this person's wedding because they gave that much to my brother when he got married. And we did, the, you know, tit for tat, tit for tat. Got to do this because I'm obligated to do it. What if you could live a life free of spiritual obligation where you could serve joyfully and freely? What would it be like to live a life where you don't need to compare yourself to anyone else anymore because you know that your worth, your salvation came through Christ's work alone on the cross. Would that change your life? Czechoslovakian theologian Miroslav Volf is really helpful here. Um, he says, imagine you have no job, no money. You live cut off from the rest of society in a world ruled by poverty and violence. Your skin is the wrong color. And you have no hope that any of this will change. Around you is a society governed by the iron law of achievement. Sound familiar? Its gilded goods are flaunted before your eyes on TV screens, and in a thousand ways, society tells you every day that you are worthless because you have no achievement. You're a failure, and you know that you will continue to be a failure because there is no way to achieve tomorrow which you have not managed to achieve today. Your dignity is shattered, and your soul is enveloped in the darkness of despair. But the gospel tells you that you are not defined by outside forces. It tells you that you count, even more that you are loved unconditionally and infinitely, irrespective of anything you have achieved or failed to achieve. Imagine now this gospel not simply proclaimed, but embodied in a community that believes it. A community that together says we are justified by sheer grace. We don't have to justify ourselves before the Lord or before each other. We don't, have to, we don't have to achieve. We don't have to put on airs. We don't have to make a show of spirituality because we are so content. You know, I remember a number of years ago going, and, and maybe you've had this experience in a different format, right? You go, and, and I used to play pool a lot, and, we, and I remember going to play pool with a group full of Christian friends, and we get there, and there was one guy, admittedly the second best guy in the room, who spent the entire time talking about how great he was. Oh, watch this shot. Watch this. Look at that. Oh, I mean, everything was like he wanted all the cameras on him. 
And then the best person in the room came, never said a word, and just cleaned his clock game after game after game. It's so easy to feel like we need to shine a light on our works of righteousness because we're not resting confidently in who God has made us in Christ. The doctrine of justification by grace proclaimed and practiced is not a dead doctrine. It is a doctrine that will change your life and that will change Christian community because it will remove the guilt that we so quickly run after as we follow in the example of the Pharisees. Ananias and Sapphira's failure to rest in God's perfect work and establish their reputation threaten the integrity of the entire Christian community. I mean, when one person starts doing godly things, before, right, Acts 2, people are doing God, people are f- so on fire to sacrificially love and give. Why? Because they're so aware of how they have been sacrificially loved in Christ, right? And so they're being generous and they're being, they're being free. They're, 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 they're welcoming people in each other's homes. They're giving financially. They're selling their houses. They're together devoted. I mean, it's this beautiful picture, right? And then everything changes because the devil comes in and sin comes up. And how that will corrupt a community when one person starts doing godly things in order to be seen doing godly things. They lose the joy of their worship. That's what Jesus says, right? He says, hey, this person, you know, who does that all for public acclaim, they have received their reward in full already. They're not going to get a reward from me. So we start doing godly things in order to be seen. We lose the divine reward and joy. And then we start this cycle where everyone then feels the need to do the same thing. And you know what I'm saying is true if you live in a tight neighborhood and you've seen the transformation when one person puts up their Christmas lights. And then the next year there's three people with Christmas lights. And the next year, someone is like trying to be Clark Griswold, and they've got lights all over their ceiling, and they buy a new breaker. I mean, I had someone on my block this past year who went in, and they brought in like a bucket truck to get the Christmas lights well done enough. And I thought, we are so pathetic. And we just tied one string of lights around our pole. (laughs) And now you're going to think I'm ungodly if I put two on next year, but... Why do we do this? Why do we compare? Why do we put on a show? Because we're not believing the gospel that we believed the moment we said, Jesus, here I am, save me. We don't need to posture anymore. We don't need to pretend anymore because our perfect Savior has taken away our sin and given us his righteousness. Jesus lived the perfect life that we cannot live. He died the death that we deserve to die. He sought us out when we were still a hot mess of sin. And he said, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Come now, let's settle this. Though though your sins are like scarlet, I will make you white as snow. He went off, leaving the 99 sheep in the pen and said, I'm going to go get that one whom I have set my love upon before the foundation of the world. And neither hell or the devil or their sin is going to stop me from picking them up, kissing them on the head, and carrying them home. That is freedom. Freedom that, no, that rests in that we are more sinful than we would want to admit to anyone and we are more d- loved than we could ever dream of. 
Let's live out the truth of that doctrine as a community to the glory of God. Father, we thank you and praise you that you are alive and that you've ransomed us from the devil, that you've reconciled us to yourself through the cross of Jesus Christ, that you rejoice over us with singing. May we see the depth of your perfection and may that ever transform us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Every year, Tammy Gordon is kind enough to put together a slideshow based on events that have happened in the last year. It seemed like this particular morning would be a good morning to watch it. And um, yeah, with that. Just slave to sin, Jesus died.